This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome, everyone. My name is Amna Akbar, and I am a professor of law at The Ohio State University. It is my great privilege today to be in conversation with David Harvey, who really needs no introduction, but who I will say very briefly is Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and Geography at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and a leading Marxist intellectual of our times. He is the author of many books, including A Companion to Marx Capital, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, and The Limits of Capital. And as important to his intellectual footprint and his political project, for decades now, he has taught open courses in person and online on reading Marx's Capital. In that sense, and many other senses, he is a perfect guest for this wonderful wonderful series by Haymarket to provide space on the left for political education, conversation, and discussion to better understand the particular moment we are in so that we may change it. Our topic today is how to build a collective response to the collective crises of our time. The way I'm hoping to structure our conversation loosely is as follows, to spend some of our time unpacking where we are now, to spend some of our time thinking together about the world we are fighting for, and to spend some of our time thinking about how we get from where we are to where we need to be. As Cornel West put it on the dig over this weekend in a phrase I can't stop thinking about, it is solidarity or extinction. So David, I wanna start by just rooting us in the here and the now, how we should understand this particular uh, conjuncture. So what I'm gonna do is a brief sketch of, you know, some of the salient, there are many, but some of the salient points of the moment that we're in. And then I'm going to ask you to expand and kind of assess and share your analysis of that. So in the United States, 240,000 people have died from the coronavirus, which has infected over 10 million people. And estimates suggest just as many have died this year as in years past from suicides, alcohol-related deaths, and drug overdoses. Last I checked, 50,000 fires have burned almost 9 million acres of land this year. At least six tropical storms and hurricanes have hit the Gulf Coast, causing widespread flooding, property damage, and power outage. Millions of people, the vast majority without a college degree, many black, brown, disabled, and immigrant are doing the essential devalued labor that makes our economy function at great peril to themselves and their families. Tens of millions are hungry without work or health care, debt-ridden, unable to make rent. Hospitals are full and nurses are being ordered to work without testing and even when they test positive. Millions are confined to carceral institutions despite squalid conditions and heightened risk of transmission in jails, prisons, and detention centers. 
Police violence continues unabated with police taking a life three times a day and engaging in all manner of violence and exploitation, particularly targeted at black, brown, working class, immigrant and poor people. And while most of us are becoming increasingly insecure, the wealthiest among us are amassing ungodly amounts of wealth and power. Jeff Bezos, for example, has doubled his wealth from 114 billion to 200 billion. And of course, we are amidst a contested election, a possible coup between two parties that represent the dueling faces of contemporary statecraft in the United States. On the one hand, the Republican Party in a neo-fascist form familiar in the annals of our history with the real estate mogul at its helm who has successfully unleashed and empowered the most intensely revanchist forces within the country. And in such a way that openly celebrates the history of enslavement, colonialism, Jim Crow, and family separation to make connections between past and present palpable and undeniable, even for white liberals. And then you have the Democrats fighting for neoliberalism, which you and others have powerfully argued is ultimately another and yet parasitic form of a class project, a return to legitimacy, a kind of MAGA for the Clinton years. They want peace and they want legitimacy. They want a return to before Trump when it was easier to deny how racism, class, and patriarchy live in our institutions and determine how we live and how and when we die. And they want to return to Clinton and maybe Obama, diversity and inclusion, criminalization and the market economy, before Occupy and Standing Rock and the movement for Black Lives or the increasingly frequent grassroots revolts, strikes, and organizing. They offer no real alternative to meet the large-scale human need exposed by neoliberalism or to mitigate the devastation capitalism has unfurled on the environment. They offer, as you have written about, bailouts to the airline industry and tax incentives to Foxconn and Amazon. But of course, this is not a time of peace or legitimacy. It is a time of great suffering and a time of great possibility. This summer's unprecedented protests against police violence and for defunding and dismantling the police spoke to the growing terrain of local contestation of race, gender, and class rule and reflected longstanding growing experiments to build another world and to shore up solidaristic efforts um, to make more survivable, increasingly unsurvivable conditions for so many. And so the left is increasingly strong, though we um, admittedly have a long way to go. Grassroots demands to cancel rent, abolish prisons and police, land back, point to the contradictions of capital, colonialism, and neoliberalism, and that despite the idea that the market economy guarantees freedom for those who earn it, we can see more plainly how the market economy puts accumulation and dispossession over people and human and non-human life. And while I focused here on the United States, these are, of course, global phenomenon in ways that you've grappled with in your writing. So what do you take as kind of the essential attributes of the moment that we're in right now? Well, first off, I want to thank you for uh, doing this. Um, this is not an easy medium, and uh, it's uh, kind of, I think, a uh, great privilege to be on here on this Haymarket Collective Response uh, series. But, um, yeah, you've outlined uh, a, a, a tremendous uh, panoply of things that are hitting us from all kinds of directions uh, simultaneously. I think it's very important, though, to try to um, separate out uh, what was there already and what the virus uh, has done. 
Um, I mean, there are certain specific things, obviously, that come from uh, the impact of the virus. And it may be that the virus has done us a favor in the sense that it stripped bare uh, a lot of the bankruptcy of the neoliberal kind of uh, governmental project, which is essentially to uh, take the government out of uh, the support of the population to privatize uh, uh, social welfare through the NGOs and all the rest of it, and uh, essentially to not prepare to protect the whole population. Um, that project has been going on for a very long time. Uh, it, it is not about getting government out of the economy. In fact, the government in many ways is back into the, always has been back into the economy in big ways. Uh, in cahoots, usually with uh, big capital, and I, to me, one of the symbolic sides of that is that nearly always the Secretary of the Treasury in the United States has come from Goldman Sachs, uh, and that's been the case since about the you know 1990s. And and in a sense, in a sense, uh, the 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 whole kind of economy has been managed uh, uh, in private public private partnerships, which is. Uh, the general strategy of which is that the private takes the profit and the public bears the risk. Um, but now the bankruptcy of that, I think, is being revealed pretty much uh, everywhere through the impact of the virus. And something has to be done, clearly, in terms of restructuring the positionality of the state in relationship to the economy. And one of the points I would probably not, not exactly disagree with you, but I, I nuance what you were saying. Was I don't think right now the ruling class, if you want to call it that, and the, the, that configuration of people uh, envisages a return to the quo. I think they see this as a point where probably uh, they have to, they have to, for a variety of reasons, launch into uh, a strategy of reform. Uh, and 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 the reform, however. And, and actually, in U.S. history, and if we just confine ourselves to the United States, there have been these uh, quite dramatic uh, reform periods, uh, like the New Deal, like uh, the Progressive Era, uh, like uh, the sort of 1960s. And I think that people see, for two reasons, that they need to reconfigure uh, the way in which state and capital uh, are, are working together. And I think... Uh, for two, the two reasons are quite simply that the legitimacy of the system was already under question. I mean, if we look back at the struggles that have been going on, not only in the United States but all around the world, uh, uh, you know, all all the places where there were semi uprisings going on, almost everywhere. Uh, clearly, the economy is not working in a way where people feel that it is, you know, okay for them, and clearly. Political governance uh, is not working in a democratic kind of kind of way. So, so I think that the ruling elite uh, are, are recognizing uh, that, and explicitly so. I mean, I, I look at uh, uh, Governor Cuomo in, in in New York, for example, who kind of says we can't go back to what we were doing before. We've got to take care of a whole bunch of issues. Uh, they know that their legitimacy. Uh, is uh, in question, and they have to do something about that. I think in this last election, 
uh, the reliance upon, uh, for instance, the black vote and the Hispanic vote and, and the reliance upon the vote of all of those people who've borne the brunt of this pandemic uh, is, is, is clearly, uh, you know, now there has to be a kind of a, a political answer on the part of ruling elite to, to all of that. So I think that that is um, uh, very much on the, on, on, uh, I, I think that's that's very much uh, on, on the cards right now, that we're going to see a period of, of bourgeois reform. But as you rightly say, it's bourgeois reform uh, that is going to address the, 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 the symptoms, but it's not going to go to the root causes of, uh, of, uh, of, of the situation. I think the same will apply to environmental politics and the like. So I think there are going to be all kinds of gestures uh, along those lines from a new administration. But there's an interesting uh, question, which is, it's very striking to me right now that 72 million people voted for Donald Trump. Mm. 72 million people. That's a hell of a lot of people. And they are, for the most part, I think, probably convinced that Biden is not a legitimate president of the country. Now, how this is going to pan out, of course, right now we don't know, uh, but we see all sorts of uh, awkward uh, signs as to what Trump is up to. Um, why, for example, has he dismissed so many people in the Pentagon? Right. And, and try, what's he trying to do? Is he trying to bring the military into his control, to use the military in some way uh, to solve uh, what he sees as the big problem of the fraud uh, when there's absolutely no evidence of that? You know, is, is, is that what's go- going to happen? So um, this is a very unstable uh, moment to be talking about this. But um, as, as I say, I think it was pretty clear uh, to a lot of people uh, around the world, not only not only in this country, and in fact in other parts of the world, probably even clearer uh, than here, that the economy is not organised in such a way as to deliver health and well-being and a reasonable standard of living to the mass of the population. And governmentality is a shambles, and it needs to be reformed. And that was on the cards uh, earlier in the year, and I think we were up for something of that direction. But the pandemic. Has, has emphasized that. I want to get back to the question of bourgeois reform in a couple of minutes, but before we get there, um, in your writings, you often talk about the importance of identifying um, essential or primary contradictions of capital in a particular moment. And I know that's something that you've been talking about and writing about in your anti-capitalist chronicles. I don't know if you've been able to update your thinking uh, in these quickly moving last several days, but what what do you think are the primary contradictions of capital now? And um, if you can just explain why is it important, why do you think it's important for organizers, activists, and social movements to kind of identify those as we kind of think about what to fight for and how to fight for it? Well, when I was writing about the contradictions, I, I had uh, you know three serious contradictions. Uh, one is the infinite growth uh, that is implicit in the fact that profitability is about an expansion. Uh, the, the system has to expand so that perpetual growth forever has been running into barriers. And I think over the last 40 or 50 years, we've seen some of those barriers emerge. Uh, there's been a big problem for capital to find new spheres to, to invest in. 
Uh, if you look at the situation in 1970, it was still the situation that China and uh, the Soviet Union and the Soviet Empire were not part of the system. They've now been integrated into the system. We've now got a genuinely, for the first time in history, we've now got a genuine situation where uh, the whole of the world uh, is, in effect, enfolded within the capitalist dynamic. And the capitalist dynamic says uh, there has to be 3% compound growth forever. Um, but where can that growth occur when, you know, it, when Marx was writing, capital was uh, established in a very small part of the world. It was mainly sort of Western Europe, Britain, and the Eastern Seaboard of the United States. And the whole of the world was still to play with. Well, the whole of the world has now been brought in. Uh, we've now got an, a huge increase in the in the global wage labor force from something like two billion to three billion. Where's the labor force going to expansion going to come from? Where's the market going to expand? All of those kinds of questions which capital was facing, have, and and was already facing, I think, over the last thirty or forty years. So this infinite growth problem. Uh, is uh, is, a, is a very serious one. And of course, the only form of capital that can grow without limit is the money form. So right. we've actually seen a huge expansion of the, of the world monetary system, which generates all sorts of questions as to what what's that money going to do. And of course, a lot of it has gone into assets rather than into production. So we've got a lot of speculation in land, uh, in, in land and, and property. We've got speculative activity, uh, in in all sorts of uh, spheres. So the infinite growth uh, is still there, and there's no way that's going to be solved uh, within the framework of capitalism because it, it, it just cannot continue that way. So that's the first stress. And what, what we've seen over the last few years is capital finding all kinds of new ways to absorb the infinite growth. Uh, the second, which is connected to that, is, of course, the environmental stresses. And now, environment has always been a problem, but it's usually been localized. We've now got a global situation with climate change and degradation, species extinctions, and all kinds of questions of that sort, and use of land, uh, which is not infinitely expandable. So, so the environmental question is there. And the third big question, uh, 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 contradiction was what I call universal alienation, uh, and and I think that more and more uh, that is actually something that which is being I think emphasised through the uh, the pandemic uh, is the fact that many people feel alienated from an economic system where they're not getting enough food, they're not getting enough support, they're not getting enough adequate housing. Uh, you know, nothing's sort of, sort, of, sort of working. So there's a big sort of uh, distrust now of the economy and, of course, a big distrust of government because a lot of governments uh, have failed. I mean, some that's not universally true, uh, but it is uh, partially partially true. So I think the, 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 the three basic contradictions which have, which have been underlying this are still present in, in many ways emphasized by the pandemic as, as opposed to sort of something completely new emerging. Right. And I think it was in thinking on the third contradiction that it was just in April in your anti-capitalist chronicles that you were writing about the likelihood of massive unrest um, heading right into the George Floyd uprisings in the United States. So we'll get to that in a second, but I want to talk a little bit now about 
where we want to go. So right now, it seems to me in the United States on the left, there are kind of two overarching and intersecting frameworks for thinking about questions of freedom, abolition, democracy, and socialism. And as Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and others have elaborated on the concept of abolition democracy as originally described by W.B.E. Du Bois in Black Reconstruction, Abolition democracy is a project of tearing down prisons, police, and criminalization, continuing the long black freedom struggle, the struggle against enslavement and its afterlives, but it's also about building the infrastructure of human thriving and to meet human need, housing, healthcare, schools, and more. And I think the turn to abolition and racial justice organizing in the United States is a profound development, and it reflects not just a deepening critique of the role of criminalization and upholding a neoliberal society. It also reflects an increasingly intersectional understanding of how race and class, um, race and capitalism operate together to deny opportunity and life chances in racialized and classed ways. And Haymarket in this series has done a number of amazing programs exploring abolition and abolition democracy. And of course, Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and many more prison abolitionist intellectuals and organizations are anti-capitalist, socialist, and Marxist. But I was hoping what you could do is talk a little bit about um, Marx's and the socialist vision of freedom um, and say a little bit about how, as a Marxist, you think about the questions of policing and prisons. Um, well, I, you know, I, you know, I was just in a seminar with my colleague, uh, uh, Ruthie Gilmore, <laughs> Just this morning, <laughs> and 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 of course, uh, I, I support very much uh, the work that she, magnificent work that she has uh, she has done, and, and Angela Davis is of course a, uh, an astonishing figure that uh, you know just 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 amazing person. Um, the, uh, the that 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 work I think is something which which. Uh, to the degree that it's very concrete and very specific, I think has been incredibly helpful in the sense that it focuses our attention immediately on that segment of the population that has borne the brunt of uh, the impact of uh, the virus. Uh, we know the, the, the deaths uh, in, in African-American, for example, and also in Hispanic, uh, Hispanics and so on, Latinx community. You know, all of that is is a very, very important component part of uh, what we what we have seen. But at the same time, uh, the people who've kept the economy going in the physical kind of sense of keeping it going, like the people in the grocery stores and and, and services, that come from that from that background. And in a funny kind of way, one of the things that's happened is that we've got a very clear redefinition of class. Now, I, my definition of class is it's not a fixed category. And I always think this is true of the way Marx sets it up. It's not a fixed category. It's constantly in transformation and motion. And I think that one of the transformations that occurred was a, a redefinition of class through uh, the response to the, to, to the virus. And if we ask the question, who are the people who are, if you like, the working class, mm -hmm. they are the working class. And when you look at who they are, you see immediately uh, the, the, the configuration of, of the population that 
formulates that that working class. And in a way, one of the things that I I, I think I did in in in, the, in one of the podcasts was to talk about this before the virus hit. And I said, look, if we want to understand how how class has been reconfigured in the United States, one of the places in which you I think you will see that would be in an airport. And I thought to myself. You know, when, when as you as as you go out of the airport, you look out and the people who are getting the plane running and the, moving the luggage around and all that kind of thing, and you look at the constitution of the population, and you see immediately that basically it is it it is is African American, black people of color, immigrants, and 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 women, and waged women, and and you kind of say that is the new working class. But at the time, I was kind of saying. If the new working class is going to get organized, then one of the ways they could do it is, is to actually organize the airports. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine if all the airports got closed down. Right. Yeah, and, and actually, I, I mean, that would, that would bring the United States to a stop in a very short time. I always remember after the, the, the 9-11 attacks, about four days afterwards, people were pleading for us not only to get out our, our, our credit cards and go shopping, but also to get back and start flying again. So, so, so the, the, the working class was already being redefined, I think, by, by that collection of people who run an airport. Mm. And, and they have a tremendous kind of power, and you say to yourself, well, suppose all of a sudden they, all of them said they're not going to go to work today. And after about a week, I think there, there will be a, a, a you know total total chaos, and 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 the political system would have to surrender. And there was a very interesting indication of that, because when Trump closed the economy down, you, you know, uh, well, the reason he opened it up was there came a moment on a Wednesday, I think it was when several airports suddenly couldn't function because the air traffic controllers and couldn't couldn't uh, turn up to work. And mm-hmm. I think Trump suddenly realized there was likely to be a total shut shutdown of the economy if he kept going like that. And so so there's a tremendous power there, potential power there. And during this pandemic, uh, what we've seen is that sort of configuration of class being redefined. In, in a certain kind of in a certain kind of way, uh, and and that is the class that if it if it decides and and, and has a collective presence and becomes quote uh, when Marx uses this com- this concept of a class in itself and a class for itself. Now we have a class in itself, which has been defined by this pandemic and was defined by the airport kind of example. If that class becomes a class for itself and says, we have the power, we have the collective power, we can close this system down, we can, you know, we're not going to put up with any just sort of reform and an an increase in the minimum wage. We want a radical reconfiguration of how uh, the economy works. That is the kind of uh, politics, I think, that might come out of, uh, of, of, of this situation. But uh, it takes recognition. It takes uh, uh, an understanding uh, of uh, the significance of what they do and uh, uh, the coming together of, of a collective way of organizing uh, that uh, self-organizing in that in that community. Yeah, so I want to ask you a little bit about um, the socialist vision of freedom, the radical reconfiguration that you're talking about. Um, you talk about how Marx writes about 
how the realm of freedom begins with the realm of necessity left behind. Um, So how do we think about that imagination or can you kind of sketch it out a little bit for us as we start to think about kind of the struggles and how people are organizing today? Well, uh, it's interesting. Um, Marx tries at a certain point to, you know, he's not systematic about this. It's just occasional kinds of uh, commentaries. But one of the questions he asks, he says, what is wealth? And, and he says, well, the wealthy person is really somebody who has all the basic needs taken care of, and they are free to do what they like with their time the rest, the rest of the day. Uh, in other words, imagine a society in which your basic needs were taken care of, uh, and you, you took care of them in, say, two or three days' labor a week. Uh, then the rest of the time you did what you liked, how you liked, uh, and you socialized how you liked and all the rest of it. So when he says the realm of freedom begins after the realm of necessity is left behind, uh, it uh, assumes that there is a a way of organizing the economy uh, to give that kind of of freedom. Now, freedom for Marx is, is again about the capacity of individuals in their own situations to do what they please and uh, to give, uh, if you like, give license to human creativity of all kinds. So what I think Marx envisages is a situation where people would go off and do all kinds of uh, creative, maybe crazy things, and and there would be no kind of, uh, if you like, societal discipline uh, that would, uh, would, would necessitate uh, they're they're engaging in certain kinds of mandated collective behaviour, but the problem is that of course the world of, of of necessity has to be taken care of, and that has to be taken care of in a way which kind of is disciplined, so that freedom is not kind of just doing what you like all the time. It's about taking care of basic things and actually being disciplined around those things and actually to some degree, being unfree in one part of the economy in order to maximize freedom in the other part of the economy. So freedom is not a total virtue. Uh, in fact, uh, of course, uh, what, the ca- what the capitalists say is uh, they want universal freedom uh, because they want the freedom to exploit. And I think that uh, Karl Polanyi wrote a wonderful little article on freedom, some good freedoms, that we want to preserve and allow and all those kind of things. And then there are some very bad freedoms which we want to curb. And those bad freedoms are going to have to be uh, taken care of and, and, and disciplined. In other words, we don't want Jeff Bezos to be free in the way he is right now, to buy up all of the newspapers and this kind of stuff. We don't want the kind of freedom that Rupert Murdoch exercises when, when, when Rupert Murdoch turns Fox News into, into Fox. These are the kinds of freedoms which are negative freedoms. So I think Marx's doctrine of, uh, of this is to, is to say there are a bunch of bourgeois freedoms uh, which are actually uh, uh, negative, and, and we have, therefore have to reject them. And, and in fact, his argument it goes something like this, uh, that liberal theory got the matters all the wrong way around. I mean, what liberal theory does is to ins- assume that there is some innate, uh, God-given, some sort of uh, primitive virtue freedom uh, which we have and which needs to be preserved. And, the, of course, the paradox of the, of, the, of the liberal theory is that out of those freedoms comes 
wage slavery, debt peonage, all of the unfreedoms that we currently experience. Marx says it's the other way around. Freedom is something that has to be made in the future. And socialism is about the making of that freedom. And the only way to make that freedom is to actually go through unfreedom in order to get to the kind of freedom. So Marx's view of freedom is a very dialectical uh, one in which the negative freedoms uh, are there. They have to be, they have to be uh, controlled at the same time as they can also be used uh, to try to take care of the basic necessities uh, uh, so that the real freedoms can be created. So freedom is, instead of being something that, that, that was, 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 if you like, a, a primitive virtue, as it is in liberal theory, uh, Marx kind of says, no, that was not, it was never there. Uh, and uh, the, the, one of the big barriers in the United States to politics right now is a view of freedom that regards it as being so anti-state, so anti-intervention, uh, so anti-collective you know, uh, collective action uh, that you can't possibly get to the positive freedoms. Uh, and that is, of course, the way in which capitalist ideology has worked very, very strongly to, to, to kind of say, well, you tell me I have to wear a mask, that's a violation of my freedom. I, you tell me I have to wear a seatbelt, that's a violation of my freedom. Uh, you tell me I have to do this, it's a violation of my freedom, I'm not going to do it. And the result is how many free people are dead right now because that's the way in which the, polem the, the virus uh, kept, uh, kept going. So Marx has that, 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 the, 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 that sort of notion of, of, of freedom, which is, which is, by the way, also consistent, and I know probably I'm going on too long, but uh, it's also consistent uh, with the idea that at some time or other there has to be an authority structure uh, to exist to some way to control the negative freedoms and at the same time to organize as systematically as possible what it is that we have to do in order to be, actually earn our way to the world of individual freedom of, uh, of uh, time. Just to go back one other thing, uh, his view is that free time is the best measure of, uh, of, of freedom. And it's a very interesting thing because if you say to people, do you feel you have a lot of free time? <laughs> and the answer is, no, I don't have any free time at all. <laughs> it's so taken up with, I don't know, arguing with a telephone company about a bill and, you know, arguing with the landlord. But, you know, I mean, actually capital has a very good strategy, which is to make us so damn busy that we don't have time for politics. Right. One of the really um, kind of profound things I think that has been happening this year, and obviously it has a longer history, but is the way that, um, you know, the crisis and environmental disaster and even Trump um, and all of the growing precarity of ordinary people exposes the way that our institutions and the structure of our relationships, um, you know, feed and sustain capital and elite rule and don't meet the needs of ordinary people. And so in some sense, what, you know, today's grassroots contestation and rebellions and social movements are asking is, 
Um, how do we meet the moment to shift our relations to one another and the land to build institutions um, to meet human need? Um, and you've written about how the pandemic and our responses provide an opportunity to think about how we might build a different society. I'm just going to read two paragraphs from something that you read and ask you to something that you wrote and ask you to elaborate on it a little bit. So you write, do we want to come out of this crisis by simply saying that there's 26 million people who need to get back to work? in some form of those pretty awful jobs they may have been doing before. Is that what we want? Or do we want to ask, is there some way to organize the production of basic goods and services so that everybody has something to eat, everybody has a decent place to live, and we can put a moratorium on evictions and everyone can live rent-free? Isn't this a moment one isn't this moment one where we could actually think seriously of creating an alternative society? And then you go on to say, in New York City, several restaurant systems have remained open, and thanks to donations, they're actually providing free meals to the mass of the population that's lost its jobs and can't get around. Instead of saying, well, okay, this is just what we do in an emergency, why don't we say this is the moment when we can start to tell those restaurants, your mission is to feed the population so that everybody has a decent meal at least once or twice a day, end quote. So when restaurants aim to provide free meals, you're pushing us to imagine it as more than a temporary measure to meet this crisis of now as a way to point to the contradictions of the state form under capital, like, for example, the Black Panther Program's free breakfast program did or Black Panther Party's pre-breakfast program did, and a step towards building a social society. And in a similar vein, you write about, or you find some hope in how the pandemic has paused a certain kind of consumerism um, in a way that we might also be able to kind of expand. So can you elaborate on what you see now in terms of experiments or possibilities that can be deepened, expanded, or reimagined? Well, I think there was a a very, um, uh, been a very interesting uh, uh, set of set of events in in, in Britain, for example, for example, uh, where one of the issues that came up with the fact that the schools were not open, mm-hmm. uh, the free meals which are given to you know kids in basically poor, the poorer neighbourhoods of the of, of the country uh, were not there. And then the big question was, well, if if they're not at school, and then they're not going to get fed. And so it took a, a, a remarkable campaign by uh, the famous soccer player, uh, Marcus uh, Rashford, uh, who became a, a bit of a folk hero by kind of actually standing up to the British government and saying, you've got to feed these kids. Because I grew up in a neighborhood where if I hadn't had you know, the free meals that come with it. So in a sense, there are, there are always these elements in society where this sort of thing is going on already, and I think the free meals for kids was 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 one one of them. And and again, this is again the, the Marxist principles that you're not going to get a socialist society unless uh, there are elements in the existing situation that can be built upon. And if there were free meals for kids and this kind of stuff, then you build upon that and say, all right, it's not only free meals for kids. And, and what we find in the voluntary sector now in the United States is free meals for old age pensioners and, 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 and the like. So a lot of it is being organized on a voluntary kind, voluntary kind of basis. And, and, of course, what we've been seeing of this is, is the enormous importance of the food banks 
and the free uh, the free the free restaurants and so on. And you kind of go, well, actually, this is something that could be uh, you know really pushed into uh, in, into something which is which is a, a new configuration in which the food security of the mass of the population is guaranteed. In other words, instead of saying, instead of saying, well, okay, uh, if you if you need it, you can you know uh, queue up to try and get the the package of food or whatever it is. Instead of that, you start to organise society around the idea that the mass of the population, uh, and actually, the, again, one of the things that the, the virus has shown is how much of the population is really, really at the margin. And and is is likely to to, to run into sort of uh, uh, you know real hunger uh, kind of problems. Well, we organise society in such a way that that we take what is being done right now and and make it permanent. I mean, it wouldn't be too hard to do because it's already there. You'd have to actually embrace. Uh, a lot of the NGOs and the and the you know the World Kitchen and all of those kinds of organisations which are doing it actually a pretty fantastic job that we that we that we, we absorb them you know, not into some vast bureaucracy uh, but we all try to organise them collectively to kind of say all right the aim here is to provide food security for for the uh, for at least the the, the uh, of the, uh, the Population states and global hunger is likely to be a real, real big problem, uh, even bigger outside of the United States than it is in the United States. And I think that we're going to have to see a global initiative that does something of the of that of that kind. So this, in other words, what 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 we're seeing is something that is going on and it's working reasonably well in the sense that so far as I know we're not finding people dying of hunger in the United States although many people are very close to it and probably there are some sectors of the population which are which are in that in that situation so yeah no this is a moment when we can start saying this is this can be a permanent part of our our, our political and economic uh, heritage. Well, one thing that you've written about, which has seems to me generated some controversy online, which I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about, is um, this idea that capitalism, you write, is too big to fail and too monstrous to survive. Um, and in a moment when you know young people on the left, in particular, are talking about abolishing a lot of things. Um, and rebuilding anew, I think it's important to kind of think about and unpack what you mean by that. So can you say a little bit more about both, like what you mean by that and what that means for these kinds of projects like we were talking about in terms of restaurants and uh, meeting human need in terms of food? Yeah, thanks for this uh, question, because uh, I got into a lot of trouble with that, (laughs) Uh, as you can imagine. But look, um, I don't think... Uh, the younger generation would want to be in a situation where it didn't have uh, computers and it didn't have a computer system where it couldn't, uh, you know, use the phones and this kind of stuff. And then you sort of ask yourself the question, all right, how is a computer made? And where does it come from? And when you ask that question, you find yourself looking at an extremely complicated 
commodity chain of component parts coming from all over the world and uh, in the ending up in the mines in Bolivia and extracting lithium or whatever, whatever you know. And then so, so something like, like a computer is, is, is made that way. And you kind of go, okay, I imagine a socialist society in which everybody would have a computer and everybody would be able to use it and we could be in communication with each other and we could organize and orchestrate things uh, as is happening with artificial intelligence and all the rest of it. Uh, I imagine a society where, where, where those things would be available. But we can't naively think that, all right, we can go, you know, tear all of that down and the whole infrastructure and, okay, there's a real problem about the platforms and who owns the platforms and how the platforms are being used, uh, but we can't do without the platforms, right? So my, my point here was to simply say, look, instead of saying, all right, we want to tear things down and, 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 and rebuild from the base up, uh, we've got to think about what it is that is going on inside of capitalism right now, and it is extremely complicated. Mm. It's very difficult to imagine how to make a computer. It's not as if you can set up a shop in your backyard and decide you're going to make a computer, uh, which is uh, of the sort that I'm 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 utilizing here, and we and then the kind of technology that we're utilizing here. This technology and these capacities and powers rest on. Uh, a structure of uh, economic flows and employment structures, which if you then kind of say, well, all right, we're going to have, uh, you know, each, each element in that whole kind of long con- you know, uh, production chain, which, which starts off in, in the mines in Africa and India and uh, sort of comes through various forms and ends up uh, right in coming to your, to your front door, that whole structure, what, what are we going to do? Are we going to disrupt it? Because if any, any element within that structure gets profoundly, you know, gets destroyed, broken down, then we will have no computers. And do we want to live in a world where there are no computers? And my answer to that is no, I don't want to live in a world where there's no computers. I hate computers, actually, so I'm the one who would, who, uh, I, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm a reluctant user of them, but, 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 but my, my, what the point I was trying to make was uh, that this is a very complex system. Uh, uh, the capitalism has both these negative and positive sides in its history. It's not all negative. Many aspects of what capital has done has opened the possibility of creativity and, 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 and the like. So what I wanted to say to people was, well, just don't imagine that you can somehow or other tear it all down and start again. No. What we have to do is we have to think about how to take over the production of computers and the production of electronics and the organization of communication networks. We've got to take that over and then imagine what it would look like as a, uh, under socialist management and how radically different would it be. And what we have seen historically is that people have a, a view that somehow or other it's going to be socialist from the ground up, from the, begin, from the get-go. The answer is no, it's unlikely to be that way. And, and we have to think, therefore, about, okay, who and how are we going to have a form of political organization that is going to manage the production of communication networks and the production of computers? So this is what I was kind of saying. So we've got to start thinking about that. 
And it's very important to think about that because, you know, we don't want to go back to the Stone Age. We don't want to go back to, to, to primitive. I mean, some people do want to go back to, 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 to sort of primitive indigenous modes of life. And, and, and I, frankly, I don't think that's going to work. For the whole of the population, they thought the you know what have we got about eight billion people in the world right now? If you take eight billion people and say we're all going to live in decentralized kind of indigenous type, uh, uh, actually the the aggregate environmental effects of that would probably be disastrous. But 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 so so I wanted to say what I wanted to say was look we've got to think about you know, the kinds of things we need to take over, and and not destroy. Uh, and if we, and and in so doing, we have to acknowledge uh, the immensity and the complexity of the system, which actually lies at the root of uh, our our daily lives. And to the degree that we do have something like food security right now, uh, which, which many people don't, but to the degree that we have it, it has a lot to do with the form of organisation that that the the, the the capital is set up, and then we have to think about forms of distribution. How is it all going to be distributed? Here yeah, we've had had a, a, a virtual revolution through this. The, the the amount of delivery that's going on, and of course the acceleration of of uh, the delivery of goods to people, and people sort of calling in and having you know, take out meals and all kinds of things. So, so I, I just wanted all I wanted to do was to kind of say, look, um, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, we're just going to tear tear that down, and we're going to have a, a, a you know a commune here and live live happily ever after. It's not going to work that way. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we've got to deal with these mega structures and take over these mega structures. And there's a great reluctance on the left. It seems to me to think about the whole kind of question of how do we organize the megastructures so that they provide the infrastructures that will allow us to take care of those basic needs in such a way as to liberate free time for the mass of the population. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, we don't have to talk about this, but I also think it's like one of the difficulties in having these conversations on the left particularly now, is that there's also kind of growing divides between more anarchist tendencies and more state-oriented tendencies um, in a way, you know, that is important to grapple with. Um, Let me ask you a different question, though. So um, you, in your initial remarks, you talked about how, you know, even before the virus, but increasingly now, capitalism and neoliberalism are in crisis and we're likely to enter an era into bourgeois reform. Now, to the extent some of those reforms, you know, do go some way to meet human need, uh, you know, we might not be altogether against them, but they don't advance uh, necessarily an anti-capitalist or socialist majority or imaginary. So what do you see as kind of um, what are the what are the strategies? What are the forms of social organization um, that the anti-capitalist left should be kind of thinking about so that um, we end up with more or something other than bourgeois reform? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of uh, like the idea very much of what I would call, call revolutionary reforms. That is, reforms that open up a path to something which is transformative. Um, Unfortunately, it is often the case that those sorts of reforms uh, open a path and then somebody comes along and shuts the door uh, pretty uh, pretty fast. Uh, and, and or the reforms get 
promote something something else. I mean, I uh, the you know the public university is a good example of of this. I think public university and, and mass education is a good idea. Uh, but as uh, there's a wonderful line in one of Dickens' novels, uh, Mr. Dombey and Dombey and Son says he's all in favour of public education, provided it teaches the people their place. <laughs> and, and 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 of course, you know, so so we could kind of say, I think higher education is a good thing. I think everybody should have access to come to the university. Uh, I I I was uh, I I I got my right the way through to my PhD was. Uh, paid for by the state, so I didn't pay anything for my higher education. I got it was it was all it was all free, and that was because there was a reform uh, of, of higher of a higher education that allowed that uh, to happen. Uh, but then, of course, there's a big struggle over. All right, well, higher education is there. What do people learn? And of course, there's been a big battle ideological battle in a way within universities as to whether we teach people uh, sort of uh, radical thinking or do we just teach neoliberal nonsense? And the answer is, well, uh, we haven't exactly totally lost that battle, but it, it's, it's an ongoing battle. So, so yeah, the reforms, I, I, I'm, I'm going to support the reforms. And in exactly the same way, and I hate to admit it, and some of your audience will, will win, I voted for Biden, and I've, I've been full of self-loathing ever since. <laughs> but 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 what else? I mean, am I going to vote for this? Am I? Am I? You know, I, I okay, I can vote for some fringe candidate, but but I, I you know, so so those are the kinds of issues that 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 that, that arise, and 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 I think that. Uh, some bourgeois reforms, I mean, if people are hurting, and a lot of people are hurting in this country right now, if there's a bourgeois reform that alleviates the conditions uh, for, say, I don't know, 20% of the U.S. population, why would I stand against it? No, I would stand for it, even though I know that this is a form of co-optation, which uh, is being organized by, you know, Cuomo and his crowd, you know, uh, to to, to try and say they're doing the good things and they should be kept in governance in perpetuity. So I I recognize all of that. And and at the same time, I'm kind of saying, all right, yes, we go for and support the reforms, but in supporting the reforms, we can always find maybe something inside of the reforms which actually allows for something to happen. And, and in a way, I lived through that in terms of the universities. I mean, there was an opening uh, of higher education in the 1960s, for example, which was which was really massive, and it was about uh, you know t- teaching people uh, to be good corporate citizens. And then there was a revolt, a students' movement of revolt in the 1960s against that. Uh, and and so we have the movement of '68, and we have a kind of movement that is very much centered in the universities. And so then there's a big trouble for the ruling class in terms of how do they actually deal with uh, this generation of, of people who've come through with these rather more radical ideas, which are about you know civil rights, anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist, all those all those kinds of ideas. Uh, and the only way they did that was essentially to say, well, okay, it seems you as a generation, the '68 generation, want two things: uh, you want freedom of choice, and you want freedom. And you want you want justice, and what, I tell you what the bourgeoisie effectively said: "I'll give you the freedom, you forget the justice," and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And that's why I'm a little bit you know, nervous about too much emphasis on freedom, 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 freedom without a critique of what freedom is about and what kinds of freedoms we want to you know, go for. So that that, 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 that generation, uh, which was very radical and wanted free speech and wanted free this and free that and free that, got freedom of the market. And we're given freedom of choice and the entrepreneurialism in the self, the freedom of the self, very attractive idea in some ways. And that's where the neoliberalism came in as a kind of a doctrine of freedom, which of a certain kind. Right. I want to bring in a question that we got in the chat because I think it, it links um, some of these micro, uh, well, different scales of struggle. Let's put it that way. Um, so thinking about what Mr. Harvey said about computers how do the people who mine the minerals required to build computers get the profits of their labor? Well, currently that is the problem. Uh, and I think at this point you would say, all right, as a socialist, what would I do? I would hope that the miners, the miners would have a collective form of organization in which they would say that they were not going to mine this stuff except for uh, an adequate wage and that they wanted part of this uh, society where the basic necessities are taken care of and they have a lot of free time. So if they organize, the miners would organize themselves that way, then you would kind of say, they, 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 yeah, you, we, we, we here would support that. But in supporting that, notice something. The price of our computers is likely to go up very significantly. And, and if we go right the way through the production chain and say every single element in that production chain is going to op operate on the same principles, that there will be a collective organization which will determine its own wage and will actually determine the price of, of, of what it is. Uh, what it is, is, is. By the time it gets to us as computers at the end of the day, it's going to be really very expensive. I mean, right now, of course, we get a lot of the things we get, you know, relatively cheaply because of the the Walmart economy, because of the, the awful conditions of uh, production, you know, in 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 China uh, and 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 elsewhere. So so yeah, how 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 do how does that happen? And to what degree would we sitting here in the United States who are using our computers? Uh, go out of our way to support and 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 help uh, establish the fact that the people doing the mining of the original materials are adequately and properly paid. I think at this point we have to sort of then say, well, that becomes a very difficult uh, problem to solve by that kind of means. And basically, one one would want to say there has to be a global form of the economy, and and as socialists, we would have to actually start to think have to think about a global form of the economy in which there are certain basic minimum standards. And there have been attempts in bourgeois reform which has basic minimum standards. I mean, there was this uh, 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 sort of a textile agreement where there was an attempt to, 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 to make sure there were basic uh, uh, rights for, for, the, for people in, involved in the production of clothing. But then, of course, shortly afterwards, what did we see? We saw in Bangladesh the collapse of, of, a, of a whole uh, you know, factory and the death of, I don't know, 1,500 uh, workers in, 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 in living in appalling, exploitative kinds of conditions. So 
we, we have to take some responsibility in relationship to all of that. And again, it comes back to the idea that, well, if we're going to take uh, responsibility for all of that, then we've got to have a political system that is actually going to work in terms of regulating the conditions of labor and the conditions of re remuneration uh, as they exist in very, uh, right throughout the production chains uh, upon which we rely for our daily food, our daily energy, our, our daily uh, uh, infrastructures. Right. So um, one of the things that this conversation kind of points to is how anti-capitalist and socialist projects need to have an internationalist component to it. Um, and I wanted to go back. I understand the United States best. Um, you have a better grasp of what's happening in the world. But going back to this question about um, you know, kind of reform and uh, the battles that will happen across the world over this crisis of capitalism and neoliberalism. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about, and I tried to tee it up a little bit in the intro comments, was kind of thinking about, you know, you have the neoliberals um, on, you know, you can kind of triangulate. You have the neoliberals over here, you have the neo-fascist or white supremacists over here, and then, you know, we obviously don't hold equal weight in terms of power, but we have numbers. We have, you know, kind of like the left, the working class, the grassroots kind of trying to articulate and create um, alternatives. And it seems to me that precisely because both um, right wing forces and neoliberal forces are in a crisis of legitimacy, but also, well, neoliberalism in crisis and both are strong, that we have to kind of think about um, for the left um, and for you know, working and poor people, um, how do we kind of both confront neoliberalism and gain some concessions from it while we kind of hold back, um, you know, the fascists and um, the right wing in the way that your vote for Biden, for example, kind of stands for. So it seems kind of like we kind of have to hold, you know, figure out how to triangulate between these forces. And I wondered if you just wanted to talk about how these dynamics are kind of playing out around the world, because I know you've written about Brazil and Chile and more. Well, it's one thing to support a bourgeois reform. Um, one, of the, one of the tricks, it seems to me, that uh, bourgeois politics played, and I found myself in this situation uh, more than once in my, my political life, is that the bourgeoisie relies upon the left uh, to provide, to actually create the reforms that they want. And so you find yourself actually defending <laughs> sort of bourgeois reforms in themselves. So you become locked into the bourgeois reforms. I, I, I'll support the bourgeois reforms, but I'm not going to animate them, if you want to see what I mean. And, and I would always be wanting to say, look, what we need to be doing is thinking about what kinds of reforms allow us uh, to progress politically. And, and I think right now, one of the things that, that's very important on that is the kind of reform which is going to allow us uh, to progress through the organization of that new class which has come into being through the pandemic and was already in formation from the example of the airport and all the rest of it. And if we go different parts of the world, we'll find a different configuration of that class and, and, and how that class structure is, is organized. But just taking the United States right now, uh, how how can uh, all of those all of those elements that essentially were in the front line of basic provision of services and goods 
uh, to the people who were all in lockdown uh, and who were living at home and doing their work from home. How does that? How did that? How is that class organised? Is it organised? And the answer is, it's not well organised. And in fact, the idea that it should be organised is kind of you know way way out there. But are there reforms? Uh, for instance, let's let's suppose uh, that Biden, unlikely, but let's suppose Biden got. Somebody got to him and they kind of said, "Look, we need to support uh, the, uh, the, the 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 if you like the the reshaping of trade union law and trade union and 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 the rights to organize." And we've got to understand that the forms of organizing that that that, that were were there in the 1960s are no longer there. You were talking about forms of organizing. Uh, which are going to embrace precarious labor, intermittent labor, all, all, all the rest of it. Um, what, what, what kinds of, what kinds of organizational forms can there be? Because labor relations, by and large, are governed by this kind of Fordist conception of. Of, of, of who the working class is and what the working class is about, and what we need right now is a is a complete reorganisation of uh, uh, trade union labour law. And if we have that, then then if if something comes up and there's, there's there's some mild suggestions along those lines that are coming out of bourgeois, that support it because that is would could then provide a vehicle by which we could go uh, and and actually participate in the animation of the real, of the organisation of that new class which is formed around the virus and as is form is forming uh, anyway, um, you, you know so. And, and we, we see some of this in terms of the struggles that are going on. I mean, the struggle in California over the question of are Uber workers workers or, or are they subcontractors? You know, that's the kind of thing where you kind of go, well, if they are defined as workers, then that makes it a different legal situation. And so that's the kind of thing where I would, I would support it. You know, not because it's going to create the revolution, but be, because by that, that redefinition, uh, it, it allows the possibility of organising in ways which otherwise would not be there. So that is the kind of thing that I would I would I would have in mind. Mm-hmm. Well, that reminds me that um, in recent writings you've also written about how the factory floor has become less central as a site of struggle in the face of financial capital, um, and that, or you said this in the anti-capitalist chronicles, um, and that much of the global protest. It takes the form of urban rebellion around unmet needs, rather than within the you know the factory floor, the workplace proper. I wonder if you wanted to talk about that a little bit. Well, there's an interesting theoretical point here, which is that uh, I take from Marx, who kind of says, look, when you consider the circulation, that uh, is associated with of the capacity to labor by the working class to the to the capitalist what you see is that in the labor market and in the labor process there is a class struggle but when you give the worker money and say okay go spend it then the worker is acting as a buyer not as a as a worker and in the market the the, the 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 worker becomes a buyer and loses the identity of worker and Marx is very explicit about that. Now, there is a politics that goes on, of course, in 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 the in the market, 
uh, over things like, uh, I don't know, monopoly pricing by drug companies, uh, speculation in housing and all the kinds of things like that. And, and people are going, engaging in struggles. Uh, over all of those issues. Now, do you say, oh, since this is not a workplace struggle, it's not primary struggle, it's a secondary form of struggle? My answer is, no, in terms of the circulation of capital as a whole, there are various points where there's a, where, where there's a strategy of struggle. But the class configuration at that point is very different from mm -hmm. the point of production. So in production, you have the classic labor versus capital kind of relation. In the market, it's buyers versus sellers. In, in, in the financial markets, it's debtors versus creditors. And so you have all of these kinds of different social relations. And the same people can be in very different configurations, which amounts to the fact that, that, that class consciousness or, or political consciousness is shaped by experience in all of those domains, both in the workplace in the living place and with the intersection with the, 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 uh, the credit card companies and all the rest of it. So what that says is the anti-capitalist struggle is going to be actually registered in all three places, but it's, it's registered in, 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 around a very different uh, mix of people. For example, uh, if, if there's a struggle against uh, the monopoly pricing in pharmaceuticals, and then it's not only workers who are involved in that, middle class people are involved in that, all kinds of people are involved in that. And debtors and creditors will come out in a different kind of configuration. So what we have to get used to is the idea that it's the, 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 the transformation which socialists are looking for is something that's going to have to operate across all of those different identities and all those different experiential worlds which form political consciousness. And if I take Marx's definition or Marx's sense of political consciousness saying, look, it comes out of material experience. So what's your material experience at the point of production? Well, you understand class relation there. What's your, your material experience as you go into the supermarket or you, or you go to the pharmacy? Well, it's, it, it's, it's a different material experience, but it's equally anti-capitalist. So when I talk, one of the reasons I talk about anti-capitalist struggle as opposed to class struggle is because very often class struggle is meant to mean only that struggle which occurs at the point of production. And I'm going, no, anti-capitalist struggle is all over the map. And one of the tricks is to actually put it all together. Now, how it gets put all together is kind of interesting. Now, historically, actually, they have often been all together. Uh, you know, uh, union movements were often very, very strong in terms of you know, intervening in the prices of foodstuffs, intervening in, in housing uh, and things of that kind. And actually... They were much better agents of anti-capitalist struggle when they, they, they linked together the, the struggle at the point of production and these questions of, of housing, uh, food security, and, and, and all the rest of it, so that it became a much more unified field of political struggle. Right. It's what Jane McAlevey talks about as whole worker organizing, um, or at least partly. I mean, one of the really beautiful things about what you just said, it was making me smile, is just because as you were talking, I could just kind of see like millions of nodes of contestation kind of opening up in new ways, in a way that I think is really generative and reflects all the range of kind of, um, you know, whether you think about the, de the debt collective or the movement for black lives or the cancel rent campaigns, yeah. all the different ways that those social relations are already being um, contested today. Um, I want to bring one another question in from the chat. So it says, you've written that, quote, 
Crises are moments of paradox and possibility out of which all manner of alternatives, including socialist and anti-capitalist ones, can spring. Can you elaborate on this in the context of the COVID crisis? And I know you spoke about it a little bit before, but I'm just wondering if there's anything else you want to say about that. Well, yeah, crises are, are um, you know, points of uh, um, opportunity, but it's as, as you mentioned in your, um, you know, the fact that Jeff Bezos doubled his uh, um, his 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 wealth uh, in in the last couple of years uh, tells you that it's a great moment of opportunity for certain elements within the bourgeoisie, and 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 I think that they see that, and 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 you know, the, the bourgeoisie is not homogeneous. There are factions of the bourgeoisie who will seize upon a crisis and utilize it. And I think that the, one of the, the things that happens on the left is a kind of notion that somehow or other uh, what a crisis is about is, is, is an opportunity for the left alone. Well, it's not. It's an opportunity for all kinds of factions to try and advance themselves into a new a new configuration, and and actually the other point is that the history of crises under capitalism is not to say that they signal the end of capitalism. They usually mean the rebirth of a different kind of capitalism. So that neoliberalism came out of the crisis of the 1970s, New Dealism came out of the crisis of the 1930s. I think we're in a kind of an interesting moment of transition right now because it's not clear what kind of capital is going to come out of this crisis. Uh, in fact, it, it was always on the cards, it seemed to me, that the neoliberal project would end up being uh, much more authoritarian, connected to neoconservatism, and now I think uh, there's a Trump version of it, which has become pretty much global with Bolsonaro and Modi and Sisi and all these uh, other people, Norban and, and, and so on. So I think that, that right now there is this kind of question. Uh, about whether that will be the form of capital which will arise right now. But what is so interesting about the COVID-19 uh, thing is that basically those forms of government, the neo-fascist ones, have not come out of this crisis very well at all. Mm. In, fact, in fact, they've come out of it rather badly. And so if anybody looks and kind of says, well, what, what kind of governance would we really need to come out of it? Well, it would be something like the either the East Asian model, because the Chinese have come out of it uh, pretty well, and so has Taiwan and, and the South Korea and the like. So we see who's come out of it, and then we kind of say, well, maybe we need a different form of, of governance. Now, the Chinese case is a very, a very interesting one. And I just want to mention this, because this, this would probably get people very upset when I say this. But, you know, China basically has saved global capitalism twice in the last 15 years. The first time was 2007, 2008, where they had this mass uh, uh, infrastructure program which kind of softened the crash of 2007, 2008 and revised, revitalized the global economy by uh, organizing demand. They've come out of the, uh, of, of the virus crisis pretty well. And they've now got the economy working again, and they're actually putting demand back into the economy. So for the second time, if you like, they're now saving global capitalism from the collapse. Uh, it, it's different, very different from this time, but we're, 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 we're close to that. Now, if somebody was sitting on Mars kind of said, whoa, what is the effective form of government on that planet called Earth? And they looked at it. 
And they say the social democracies are a disaster, particularly those which have got to the point of where they're at. Um, and, okay, New Zealand is a special case and all the rest of it, but the ones that have come out of it very well have been the East Asian ones, and China's come out of it perfectly well, and it's done extremely well in, in two of them. So what is the form of political economy which is really going to work extremely well in terms of a global model of how to work? And it's the Chinese one. Now, China is a mix of progressive social agenda and authoritative, authoritarian surveillance kind of kind of politics. And 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 this this occurred to me, and I I thought to myself, well, you know, <clears throat> there used to be this kind of uh, discussion that went on. It goes back to Rosa Luxemburg and so on. That capitalism is going to end up with a choice of barbarism or socialism. Right. China com combines socialism and barbarism mm -hmm. in, in, in its own political economic project, and it's the only one that's really working well, except that the Chinese are disastrous from the standpoint of greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. Total disaster. Mm -hmm. And that is, if you like, one of the big, big question marks. So my, my, my point, my general point here is that we, there are models of governance around uh, which seem to be working reasonably well in the current situation. And I don't think there's a movement in China against the government. I think it's amazing that there's a, this level of support. But then there are 90 million people in the, in the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. And I think that that talks to a form of organization which is very, very foreign uh, to, to, to our part of the world, except that I'm, I'm very exercised by the fact uh, that Donald Trump had 72 million people vote for him. I mean, that is astonishing. And then you kind of say, what's going to happen with those 72 million people? Maybe they'll form a political party like the Chinese Communist Party and, 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 and off, off, off will sail Donald Trump into the sunset. With a, well, I don't know. This is all silly fantasy. But <laughs> my, my, my point here is that uh, there, there, there are uh, the, the, typically what, what tends to happen in situations of this kind is the world looks around and says, where's the model of government that's really working? Mm. And, and there's a great reluctance, uh, of course, uh, in circles in, in, in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, and there's a great deal of anti-Chinese sentiment right, right, right now. But be careful. Uh, because that is something which is, you know, a very, a, a very, a very real uh, situation. Um, so let me, we're getting close to time. So let me ask you a question in a slightly different register. One of the things I've so admired about you over the years is your dedication to teaching and political education outside of your kind of formal role at CUNY. Um, and you've been teaching now for decades and in that sense, you know, and engaged in different forms of intellectual production and political struggle for decades. Um, you know, and I wonder, I mean, I feel, and I, you know, I've been teaching for about 10 years now that, you know, through conversation with students um, and young people, uh, I get a kind of sense of how things are shifting. Now, of course, I'm in Ohio, and so that kind of changes 
is my sense of how representative my students are than maybe in New York City um, of what's happening in the country. But I guess I just wanted to ask you, as someone who's both been teaching for decades um, and someone who's been thinking and writing and participating in political struggle for decades, what you see, um, both in terms of changing common sense or questions among young people and kind of the hopeful horizons today in terms of contestation and organizing, whether it's in New York or in the United States or around the world? I think, um, I think the context, one of the things that was so interesting about teaching Marx all those years was how the meaning shifted in relationship to transformations that were occurring. And, and I think that uh, the situation today is really, uh, you know, radically different from what it was in the 1970s. Uh, Marxist circles in the 1970s, I think what we saw uh, was something, uh, it, was, it was actually very hard to talk about environmental problems. I mean, you would probably surprise you, but when I, when, whenever we talked about environmental problems, the conventional Marxist was kind of say it was petty bourgeois romanticism that you were engaged in, and you just wanted to go off and cuddle polar bears or something like that. Um, well, that's not there right now. I mean, I, I think that that clearly there is a, a, a much, much more concern with environmental questions. Uh, and uh, being a geographer, I was always sort of interested in the environmental side, and I'm very glad that uh, the, the, that transformation has occurred. I think the other thing was, uh, of course, the other one of my big interests was urbanization. And, and again, that was considered as a minority kind of project uh, back when I was starting. I mean, I had major people in the field of the left kind of saying they never read anything I had written because I was a geographer and who would have imagined a geographer would have anything important to say about Marxism. Well, that's changed a bit. And I think that, that that's, that's, that's important. And I think there's a much more uh, mass base right now, but it is spread over issues of consumerism, issues of, uh, of social provision, uh, debt and finance and all those kinds of things. So, so, so there is a, a far broader base for a left uh, movement. Uh, and then, of course, in addition to that, uh, there's uh, what what doesn't exactly add in but complicates matter is the, the the rise of initially of identity politics, which is now I think being gone into a more uh, a more serious kind of integration uh, between uh, what uh, you know question of, of, of race and, and gender and uh, sexual identity and all, all the rest of it. those issues. Have become uh, uh, much much more uh, uh, pressing, um, but the result of this is that the 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 map, if you like, of, of anti-capitalist struggle is much more complicated and much more diffuse and much much harder to put together. And when you put it together, also there are various currents there which are antagonistic to each other. Obviously, I belong to one current which kind of says I'm not anti. Government. I'm not anti-state. I think that the, the taking over the state is still a very important part of what politics would be about. But many other all forms of organisation are about autonomy, about decentralisation, about all those kinds of things. And one of the things I say to people, I say, well, you know, it's so interesting to me that the the the, the predominant terrain of left politics in the 1960s was essentially defined by Fordism. 
So even the opposition was Fordist in its imagination. That is, what it was doing was uh, kind of uh, setting up trade unions, setting up big organisations, having political parties, this kind of stuff. And there was, uh, and, and 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 even as uh, you know, Melinda Cooper just says, says about the family, there was even something what you might call a Fordist family. But right now, after neoliberalism, it's the other way around. I mean, neoliberalism has always been to be about decentralization. It's been about autonomy. It's been about, you know, com- competition. It's about entrepreneurialism of the self and identity and all this kind of stuff. And we have a left which is actually mirroring it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the left is mirroring that which it wants to defeat and criticize in its form of organization. And I sometimes say to myself, you know, what we should really do on the left is smash the mirror because we need to actually get out of the fact that we cannot imagine uh, uh, something which is not actually consistent with the contemporary forms of, 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 of political and economic organization. So one of the big messages I would want to say is, okay, imagine things are not just simply like neoliberalism with a left tilt, Neoliberalism with leftist characteristics, as the Chinese like, you know, as, I, as I would call China, we have to think about something which is kind of you know radically, radically different. And this is a moment when I think some of that imagination can occur, and and I think the the virus has created that possibility. I mean, the very the very uh, and we're not paying enough attention to this. How much? Food security in the United States right now is actually being delivered in a, in a free kind of kind of way, and, and and where is the resources coming from, and how can resources be mobilised to, to to make that a permanent feature of, of of our social and economic and political life? Why are we not hammering on that right now, and saying make that a permanent feature? That is where we should be going. All right. Well, smashing the mirror is a good point, I think, on which to close. David Harvey, thank you so much for having this wonderful and wide-ranging conversation this evening on this important Haymarket series. It's truly been a pleasure, and I learned a lot. And I think I want to thank you very, very much for being patient. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.